0: Hello, and welcome to episode 94 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. As you know, we have spent several episodes on the concept of value-based care and what it means to medtech. The biggest player and promoter of value-based care is a government agency called the CMS. And our guest today is Douglas Jacobs, MD, MD. Chief Transformation Officer for the CMS Center for Medicare. Doug is going to help us understand what CMS is, and more specifically, what the Center for Medicare is. He's also going to help us with bundled payments, value-based care, ACOs, which also stands for Accountable Care Organizations, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the Council for Technology and Innovation, the importance of health equity, and more. We frequently relate these issues to MedTech, and for anyone that wants to better understand the CMS and the Center for Medicare specifically, you will want to stay tuned. Here's a clip of what Doug had to say about the impact of the Medicare Shared Savings Program.
1: And the Medicare Shared Savings Program, more it affects more than 11 million people with Medicare. Um, and It also has been shown to reduce healthcare costs um, by more than $6 billion over the last uh, five years. Um, That also increased savings for the Medicare Trust Fund. But also importantly, it improved quality. You can see improvements in quality of care compared to similar physician groups that aren't in an accountable care organization.
0: Now, your products may have contributed to some of the costs of that program. Do you know? Is there a way for MedTech to be more proactive in various CMS and Medicare programs? The big companies are already on top of this. What about small and medium-sized companies? Now, if you think a colleague should hear this episode, simply share it with the share link on your podcast platform of choice. There will be some links in the show notes that Doug and I refer to that could be helpful. Now let's meet up with Doug to better understand the CMS, the Center for Medicare, and how it impacts us personally and how it impacts MedTech. Doug, welcome to the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. Thank you very much for being being here. It's uh, terrific to have somebody from CMS talking to us about value based care.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: Well, as we get started, let's just start. I mean, I've introduced you a little bit earlier um, in my prelude, in my intro, so to speak. Why don't you just tell us who you are, what you do, and um, a little bit about your role at CMS?
1: Sure. Um. So. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Doug Jacobs. I'm a primary care doctor by training. Um, I'm the chief transformation o- chief transformation officer at the Center for Medicare. Um, that means I'm focused on uh, moving our system away from fee for service towards value based care. Um, on some of the health equity initiatives within Medicare, um, and really anything that has to do with delivery system transformation, I I, uh, I pay attention to and, and have a hand in. So. Um, uh, I, I came most recently from Pennsylvania where I was um, working on Medicaid uh, as the chief medical officer um, and working on everything from from COVID to similar issues that I'm working on now, value-based care, health equity. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that, that gives a little bit of color as to, to my role.
0: So you went from a role in Pennsylvania that was somewhat, I wouldn't say similar, but it was a public health role in, in Pennsylvania, which is where I live, Philadelphia, and now you're working for CMS and, and the government. Did you have to move or are you able to sort of commute to your job?
1: I, I, I moved, actually, yeah. So I, I live um, I live now uh, in one of the Maryland suburbs right outside of uh, D.C. I, I used to live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So um, we okay. made a lot of trips to Philadelphia.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Okay, very good. And before we uh, started, you and I were chatting and, and I said, you know, is there a story that you could share with us? A, a story that maybe influenced your career, your life, uh, the way you look at um, value-based care, and/or you know, uh, public health? Do you have a story that you could share?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, I'm a, a practicing primary care doc, and so have a, had a lot of interactions with patients that really inform my outlook on what we can fix in our healthcare system. Um, and one particularly salient story um, that I remember from my time as a resident. Um, I, I saw this patient a few times in my clinic. Um, was always after she she fell and broke a bone and had to go to the hospital. Um, she was um about 81 or 82 years old and um and she spoke Spanish. Um and she kept on going back and forth to the hospital. And finally, maybe like the I think the second or third visit, I was like, I asked her, um, you know, I, just out of curiosity, like, do you do you drink alcohol? Um, and she said, "Yeah, I do. I drink four beers a day." Um, and I said, "Oh, okay." I'm um, like, "Why? Why do you drink?" Um, and she said, "Oh, I just, I just like the taste." Um, and I then asked her, um, "Has she ever tried non-alcoholic beer?" And she said, "No." And she, um, she tried non- non-alcoholic beer from then on out, and she stopped falling, um, and she stopped going to the hospital. Um, and I think it, for me, it underscored. The importance of really treating people like whole people. You know, it's not just the physical health conditions; it's the behavioral health conditions. It's um, their like their access to language services. We were using an interpreter, and um, and you know, I I really look back. I was like, I wish I had asked that question. You know, a couple of times earlier. But also, um, folks that really cycle in and out of the hospital. A lot of them that struggle with poverty, um, housing instability, these other challenges. Um, it it's really important for our healthcare system to really treat these people as whole people. And so um, I think it's really informed my outlook of um, how we think about policy change and how we can really meet people where they're at and um, try to give them the the best possible care possible.
0: Well, that's really great. And let's just segue a little bit into your career. I mean, so you were a practicing physician. What took you toward public health?
1: I I realized that, you know, when I was seeing patients in the hospital, in many ways, I was treating the end effects of, of policy failures about like lack of care coordination, um, uh, people having to kind of come back to their clinic to get um, information about the results of their tests, doctors not talking to one another, so that, but my personal like struggles with like trying to find like a patient's emergency, like electronic medical records when they didn't have access to it. There's all these things that I felt like could really be fixed in a system. Um and, and there's so many patients that I felt like could be better advocated for in the system as it exists today, because it's oftentimes those patients like the one that I just talked about that um when we don't have really proper oversight of our programs and policies aren't working, it's those folks that fall through the cracks. And so um, how do we change our system to really move the needle forward? Um and I I did some internal thinking and really felt like policy change was where I could make the biggest difference. But I also felt simultaneously like that interaction with patients is crucial, and so I'm really looking to um, to continue that every so often um, when I can, uh, like treatment of patients as a part of my career, to really stay grounded, um, to really like as the north star of of where we can go as a system and the struggles and that everyday people are are really faced with, and especially during the COVID pandemic, it's been especially acute some of the struggles that people are are facing. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what brought me into policy is kept me here.
0: And so you had to go, but do you went back to school for like a public health degree or? Yeah, exactly. Wow. How long did that take?
1: It was just a year actually. So it wasn't too, too long, but, um, yeah, I learned a lot for sure.
0: Okay. And h- were you practicing in Pennsylvania then? I was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, Pennsylvania I- practice. And how long did you practice before making this shift to public health?
1: Um, so i can right out of residency i started doing both public health and practicing so i've okay. practiced for as an attending physician for um like three and a half years now wow oh, okay yeah
0: okay all right so a really good foundation in terms of hands-on being a doctor getting the public health interest the degree and then moving into um, public health policy and and management and so on okay that that's great. I mean, that's the way it should be. I mean, you can you know walk the talk, <laughs> so to speak, right? <clears throat> so what now? You work for CMS, and for the listeners, I'm going to go through a couple of very basic things sure. beca- because it's it's amazing how many people get this wrong or g- get some of these things wrong. So, what does CMS stand for?
1: So it stands for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and. You'd probably think that there would be two Ms, but there isn't <laughs> there's, right. there's just one. Um, I, I I don't know exactly why that is, um, but I think that originally people thought it sounded better to just be three letters instead of four, um, but that's what it stands for. So CMS is broken down into a lot of different centers. So I work for the center for Medicare, but there's also a center for Medicaid and the children's health insurance program. There's a center for what's called the center for consumer information insurance oversight. They, they oversee the marketplaces. Um, There's a Center for Clinical Standards and Quality. Uh, There's a Center for Program Integrity that focuses on fraud, waste, and abuse. And so um, all of these centers really work together. um, And uh, I really enjoy this kind of cross-center work um, and trying to break down silos, even within our own agency, to make sure that we're doing the best that we can for for everyday, um, everyday folks.
0: Okay. So again, for the listeners, you should go to the CMS website if you've not been there. Because you'll start, as you just explore it a little bit, you'll start to get a feeling for how big an organization this is and how important it is, you know, all the areas uh, in healthcare and on our lives that it it can touch. And so um, you work for the Center for Medicare. And of course, that's important to us today because we're talking about value-based care. But what what would you say um, CMS is like, especially the Center for Medicare, what is your overarching goal?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so, the Center for Medicare um, and just Medicare in general, we cover more than 63 million Americans, um, and we're responsible for more than one in five dollars um, that, uh, that are that are are spent in healthcare in the United States, uh, making us the single largest purchaser of healthcare. Um, our goals are reflective of the goals of our administrator of CMS, Chiquita Brooks-Lashur, and it's really broken down into six pillars. Um, So the six pillars, um, starting with um, advancing health equity. Um, Advancing health equity is very important, um, not only um, in its own right, but also in the the subsequent pillars that I talk about. Um, It really underlies a lot of these pillars. Um, So the second pillar, uh, building on the Affordable Care Act uh, to expand access to quality affordable health care coverage. Uh, The third pillar, um, engaging our partners and the communities we serve throughout the policy making and implementation process. So part of that's today, getting to um, engage with folks and uh, help folks understand what we're doing. Um, Driving innovation to tackle our health system challenges and promote value-based person-centered care. So that's the value-based care work that we'll we'll talk about more. Um, Protecting our program sustainability for future generations by serving as a responsible steward of public funds. Um, and lastly, fostering a positive, inclusive workplace and workforce and promoting excellence in all aspects of CMS operations. Um, so um, we'll we'll get more into those pillars and particularly how value-based care kind of intersects with them. Um, but that's an overarching uh, overview of our of our goals.
0: Okay, so the six pillars, how would you define value-based care? How would you define that?
1: Yeah. Um, so very simply put, um, we're trying to pay for uh, improved quality and reduction of cost for people with Medicare. Um, and I think that what's important with that, when we talk about for people with Medicare, what people care about, um, when we say quality, they care about care that that is safe, uh, care that is really patient-centered and care that's equitable. Um, and when we, when we also define cost, it's really affordability for the person with Medicare. Um, so when we're trying to drive value-based care, it's these ideas of Quality, affordability, costs that really are in one term um, for us—and um, value-based care can be a really important and effective tool. Um, that, and we'll talk about more about what what promoting value-based care can mean and why it's important.
0: Okay, I think this is interesting because, of course, you're looking at it from the government or the Medicare standpoint. But when I've interviewed um, and talked to leaders on the provider side. They're also looking at it from a total system standpoint. So, like, uh, um, like I'll be interviewing the VP of Population Health for Northwell here soon. I've interviewed him before on a different subject, but they look at this like for their whole population. How how can you reduce costs and take a value based care approach, which CMS is pushing? But how can you take that to an entire population? And Reduce the heads in the beds versus increase the heads in the beds, which is the fee for service model. Right, <laughs> yeah. um, hey, I think it th- that's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about how the CMS directly influences, like the whole value based care movement. And one of those things is the the quadruple aim that people talk about. And I have those those four items as improve. Improve patient experiences, and these sort of go hand in hand with some of the things you just talked about, but improve, improve patient experiences, improved clinical experiences of providers, uh, improved population health, or, which is better outcomes. And then the reduction of healthcare costs. How do you look at, uh, I mean, do you guys think in terms of the quadruple aim when you're working day in and day out?
1: We do. And, um, you know, to your point earlier, also, um, a fee for service system doesn't necessarily get at the quadruple aim. Um it right. really it's it focuses on how much our provider is actually doing. And as as I think everybody knows, it's not necessarily like how, how many tests they get or how many times they see their doctor or how many procedures they get that really define high quality care for them. And um, and so another aspect is that uh that in a fee-for-service system, we don't really Um, Like the the payments go for patients that already have access to care. So it's not that population health approach that you just talked about. So when we think about the quadruple aim and what matters for for patients and for providers and um, for our system at large, I think that the movement towards value-based care is is really, really important. When we think about value-based care within Medicare, um, we're responsible for the largest value-based care program in the country, which is called the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Uh, and the Medicare Shared Savings Program more it affects more than 11 million people with Medicare, um, and it also has been shown to reduce healthcare costs um, by more than six billion dollars over the last uh, five years. Um, that it also increased savings for the Medicare Trust Fund, but also importantly, it improved quality. You can see improvements in quality of care compared to similar physician groups that aren't in an accountable care organization. And, and we can talk about what accountable care organizations are and mean. But part of the way that at Medicare we make um, changes and really push value-based care is changing the, the, what this program looks like and how it impacts people and how willing providers can be to actually sign up for the program. Um, we work very closely with the center. We, we talked earlier about the different centers at, um, at CMS. At another um, very crucial center is uh, part of the value-based care movement is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And you can kind of think of them, um, a lot of times the analogy that's used is um, uh, CMMI, or the Innovation Center, is like the icebreaker, um, and then Medicare is like the oil tanker that kind of comes behind, and um, like after the ice has already been broke. And so what happens is basically CMMI, or the Innovation Center, tests these models, and if there are parts that are successful, we at the Center for Medicare can adopt them writ large more into the program. And um, in that way, we're making really evidence-based and evidence-informed decisions to get at exactly this quadruple aim: how is it affecting patients? How is it affecting providers? Um, and how are you? How does it affect the total cost of care? And the other aspect I think, which is so crucial about value-based care and the total cost of care, is when when providers um, collectively are responsible for the total cost of care. It kind of it really changes the kinds of things that they care about. So, for example, addressing the social determinants of health, just like the patient story that I, I talked about earlier, how is food and housing and like someone someone's drinking habits, how is that actually affecting their total cost of care? Um, and so you have more incentive to ask these questions about like, holistically how people are actually doing rather than just focusing on an individual body part um, or just an individual condition, uh, but really how it all fits together and how they access care in the healthcare system.
0: Okay. And I I can tell, like when I go in for a doctor's appointment, they frequently ask me the same questions, Um, but they'll ask questions. It sort of goes back to your story, but they'll ask like, how many drinks do you have a a week uh, of alcohol or how much do you drink? Like per day, per week, whatever. They, they'll ask questions like that. How often are you falling and so on um, that they didn't ask 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, folks, are constantly like surprised sometimes at the answers and we don't know unless we ask. And yeah, you know, it's I, I think that oftentimes people make um like make generalizations and like you might not ask uh, a person um like if they have food insecurity, it can sometimes be an uncomfortable thing to ask someone. And it's an uncomfortable thing to admit too. And so just the way that questions get asked sometimes are really important. um And developing that that trustworthy um kind of doctor-patient relationship can be so important to actually getting meaningful responses sometimes to those questions as well. So absolutely.
0: You know, I had something, uh, something interesting happen the other day is that, um, and I know that some practitioners are that rely more on cash flow, let's say like a dentist or, or an optometrist. Uh, they are very eager to have you come back and they're very organized about asking you to come back, but that's more of a fee-for-service type of environment. But um, when it comes to primary care, you wouldn't think so much. But I got a call from my primary care practice um, telling me that, you know, you've been beyond a year, you're over a year, you're past your annual health exam. You need to come in. And so they're encouraging me. Now, one part of you could say, well, they would like to get reimbursed for that visit. I'm sure they would. But the other part of me says that if I don't go in there, on a regular basis at my age, I, I could, who knows, be starting to uh, suffer from some kind of condition that could just get worse and be much more expensive and much more difficult to recover from if I, as opposed to catching it early.
1: I think that's exactly right. So what you're referring to is also the annual wellness visit project. Yes, like that's it. And exactly. And, um, and it's an important time because that's the time where a lot of the screening questions get asked about all of the things we're talking about. Um, but it's also like when people check your blood pressure, when they check you for diabetes, when, when if you're due for a colonoscopy, that's when they say, oh, time time for you to get that colonoscopy. And then um, so that it make, can make sure that you're not developing polyps or colon cancer. Um, and so all of these preventative services are really important. And Medicare um, doesn't have cost sharing <laughs> for, for a lot of these things. Um, and so... Um, it's really important uh, that I think, and the, part of the reason why this is important is that you might think that historically, yeah, people wanted to have you come in all the time because they would get paid fee for service. Um, and there are certain elements of um, of care today where it's still important to come in and see your doctor and make sure you're getting those preventative screens. And what's interesting is that when you're in these models, accountable care organizations or other um, value based models, there's still the incentive to come in. It's not it's not just that you know. We're trying to tamp down on all patients coming into the doctor, but there's still really high value care that people really want to focus on, just like those all the preventative care that we just talked about.
0: Sure. So if I'm correct, some of this all started years ago with the concept of bundled payments for care improvement. Right. Was that uh was value-based care even in people's minds at that time? Or or and were they just starting with certain cost areas that they wanted to focus on is that what happened How, tell us a little bit about I me mean, about bundled cam- payments for care
1: sure yeah and um bundled payments was one of the first models um the term value-based care really predated um it predated the affordable care act so it was before um before 2010 and there were, there were kind of these um these experiments were going on across the country, and there wasn't really a systematized way to evaluate a lot of these things other than kind of one-off research reports that were coming out. Um, And what the Affordable Care Act did is it created the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which I work very closely with. I'm not in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, Um, but it also created um, this program that I discussed earlier called the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And uh, so the Medicare Shared Savings Program just uh, celebrated its its 10-year anniversary um, a lot of the first um, value-based care programs just also celebrated um, uh, their, their their ten year or eleven year or 12 year anniversaries. And so what was what was important is that these these programs, bundle, so what bundle payments are, just to just to start there, is basically a payment for a bundle of services that you might otherwise get paid fee for service for. So in the context of, for example, a hip or knee replacement, it's not only the the actual surgery itself, but it's also some of the pre-work that goes in before the surgery and it's the recovery period afterwards. And so what that does is it really kind of, um, it really incentivizes, can incentivize high quality care. And so there can be increases in payments um, based on what we know in quality measures. Um, So if you do a good job with that hip and knee replacement and you are less likely to get readmitted or less likely to, to have complications in your surgery, that can be a bonus um, for those clinicians. And so, so then they start caring about other things that they didn't care about before, like, um, like, how am I actually doing in terms of my surgeries, rather than just how many surgeries can I do? Um, and I think that that's important. Um, and so the move towards bundle payments has really been an important development over the past um, 10 or so years. The, the other aspect of that, that we're now trying to think about is when you have these different models, how do they all interact with one and, one another? So, If you have these accountable care organizations and you also have bundle payments, how do we think about um, how they interact or don't interact or should interact? Um, And so that's kind of the next frontier is is really trying to harmonize a lot of these models. And the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation has really um, has come out with a strategy about how they're starting to think about this. um, And it's partly where we're going to.
0: Yeah. And the reason this is important for medtech is because medical technology gets uh, is part of that bundle. Uh, so what you just mentioned the like a hip surgery or knee surgery. That hip implant is in there. The disposables that are used are in there. They're all part of this bundle. And so some people look at bundles like they were the bad guy. Like that was it was driving it was making hospitals tougher on the on the vendors on the suppliers of these technologies, and therefore pushing price down, pushing margins down, and so on. But on the other hand, you know, it forces competition. It forces people to become innovative and look for solutions, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think what's really interesting, too, is that while while CMS runs some of these models, a lot of these models aren't necessarily run by CMS, too. There's a lot of commercial payers out there um, that are thinking about their, their bundle payment model, how they want it to look. And um, there are certain circumstances where you can make a case for certain things being excluded from a bundle. Um, And so where there are really technologies that have shown to really move the needle that we know will substantially improve quality of care, potentially reduce cost if they're used more, and just the fact that they're in the bundle is the problem. um, We really explore all of that um, and try to make really educated and informed decisions about what gets included in the bundle and what's not included in the bundle. And so we do that in close collaboration with um our the center for clinical standards and quality that like look at all the evidence and also just as we think about the intersection between these these devices and uh and, and the providers and the other thing i wanted to say about this is that while it's important to engage with cms um certainly it's also really important for folks to engage with the providers because if if um the medical device companies can can show that hey this medical device in x y and z way can really improve quality outcomes and uh, or, or reduce costs, and as part of that, I mentioned that equity is a big focus. If if they're the technology, new technology, can reduce inequities, hey, that's a really important thing for for CMS to know, for the providers to know that are engaged in these value based care arrangements. So, anyways, I just wanted to to put that in context.
0: No, it's very important, and the smart companies now spend a fair amount of time uh, focusing on uh, value case, value based care packages and uh, value analysis packages and so on that they would provide to a provider uh, to try to convince them that we can fit into these bundles, we can help you achieve your objectives and so on. Okay, so let's divert a little bit and let's talk about what is an accountable care organization. Sure. Yeah. So uh,
1: an accountable care organization is a group of uh, doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers. We all collectively come together to voluntarily give coordinated, high-quality care to the Medicare patients they serve. Um, and I'm speaking about it in the Medicare context, of course, because that's where I'm at. Um, but you can also have these accountable care organizations in Medicaid, for example. Okay. Um, so th- this, this coordinated care um, really helps ensure that patients, especially the chronically ill, get the right care at the right time with the goal of avoiding unnecessary duplication of services and preventing medical errors. Um, So when an ACO succeeds in both delivering high quality care and spending um, dollars more wisely, then it shares those savings that it achieves um, with the Medicare program. So that's kind of how it all
0: functions. Okay. So can you give a, maybe a, a little bit of an example of how that might work, maybe related to a particular kind of patient?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, Say someone, let's just use the example of a patient um, that has diabetes. And I've okay. seen a lot of patients with diabetes in my clinic. There might be a group of doctors that come together um, in different healthcare practices and decide that they're going to be an ACO. And so the diabetes patient, when they go into their doctor, say they go in with a foot ulcer, and this can be a common problem with, with someone with diabetes. When they go into the ACO, um, say they're worried about this, this infection and there might need to be surgery. The primary care doctor can order uh, x-ray um, and do blood tests to check like the level of diabetes. And, and then if they um, the radiologist reads the x-ray, they can refer directly to the surgeon who can also see the, the x-ray and they can decide that, oh yeah, this person does need surgery. The patient gets the surgery, discharges back to the primary care doctor um, who can see the entire records of like the surgery that happened and, and at the end of the day, the, the practice might do things like ask about social determinants of health, like we talked about before. So is a patient food insecure? And they might find out, hey, this patient actually is food insecure. And that's probably what's leading to this, so this worsening diabetes. Here's a resource for a local food bank. Um, and what I just described right there was coordinated care. The opposite end of the spectrum, just to kind of um, put this in stark relief for folks, say a person, go, same patient goes to their doctor that's not an ACO. I'm not coordinated in the ways I just talked about. And there might be a series of tests that's ordered. The the primary care doctor reads the test. Oh, I need to refer this patient to the surgeon. The patient goes to the surgeon, gets another x-ray because the the person can't can't read the first x-ray or gets more tests and then decides to do surgery, sends him back to the primary care doctor after the surgery is done. The primary care doctor doesn't know what was done in terms of the surgery and Uh, has to like try to find the records or um, has to reorder the tests again um, to to see what actually happened in the surgery itself. So lack of coordination in healthcare can be really problematic in a number of ways. In the model itself, um, at the end of the day, that group of physicians and doctors and nurses and uh, and, and, um, and MAs and PAs and the whole interprofessional group that formed the accountable care organization, when you first talked about the population health so if at the end of the day, the population that they're responsible for taking care of, if they reduce that total cost of care, then um, then they, as the ACO, gets to save a portion of that, and we as Medicare get to keep a portion of that too. And so it's better for the sustainability of the Medicare program overall, in addition to giving people the patient, giving patients the healthcare that they really deserve.
0: So a hospital system could be an ACO, for example.
1: It could. Yeah. Um, And, and so some of, some of them are hospital systems, but some of them are not not hospital systems. Um, There's kind of these independent practices that decide to come together as well.
0: Oh, they come together and say, we're going to work together as an ACO. When I get this kind of a problem, I'll start it. You have access to all these records. Then you're going to take the next step because I'm going to refer this patient to you, blah, blah, blah. And it goes from there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's what an accountable care organization is. Great. Let's talk about the CMS Innovation Center a little bit. You'd referred to that before and in terms of testing models. When I went into the CMS site and I looked at the um, a map, i I think I was looking in the right place, but it looked like there was a map of all these different, I guess are experiments that are going on. There are hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds around the United States. Yeah. How does how do you sort through those and understand the results you're getting to to decide that gee, this looks like a something that we should adopt as a total organization.
1: Yeah, so so the innovation the innovation center tests many different models as you described. When they have an individual model, there might be 50, there might be 100, there might be 200 different model participants, like okay. basically Entities that have decided, yes, we're going to partake in this model. Um, and so when you look at a map, there might be several different models going on all across the country. What's what ends up happening is that for each of each individual model, um, say they, they're coming up with a new ACO model or trying to test some changes to the Medicare Shared savings program that I discussed earlier, they then have like a research team that looks and says, How is this these changes actually working with the ACO model? And what we as Medicare do at the end of the day, we, we digest all of that learning as well um, to basically what kind of tweaks do we need to make to our ACO program at large to, to make changes that persist and really improve quality of healthcare, improve equity, reduce the total cost of care for the American public.
0: So if there was a something that they were trying out, let's say it's a, a model related to sepsis care or something like that. And so is that something that the Portsmouth Regional Hospital, I don't know if there is such a hospital, but in Portsmouth, Ohio, is that something that one of their people, their executives, can be looking at um, the site and say, oh, they've got this interesting model they're working on. Let's apply to participate. Is that how it works?
1: It is, yeah. Okay. Um, that's how it works on the Innovation Center side, exactly.
0: Okay. Interesting. I almost wonder, I mean, we're sort of thinking out loud here, and we didn't prepare for this in terms of our conversation, but it makes me wonder about how um, MedTech could work with the local provider in in, in terms of, we'd like to help you succeed in that model, you know, participating in the model.
1: I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Um, A lot of um, different MedTech could go to these um, healthcare providers that are partaking in this model or thinking about partaking in certain models or thinking about partaking in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, like I described earlier, <clears throat> and really trying to identify how can this new technology help the providers provide better care and lower costs? How can they really focus on addressing the social determinants of health? How can they focus on promoting equity? Um, in line with the, the pillars that, that I described earlier, um, they can be pretty successful in that. Um, and insofar as they're able to to get providers to want to use their technology to really um, move, the need, move the needle. Um, because these these goals, we're not going to solve it just by ourselves at CMS. It's really some of the inequities that exist, some of the um, quality of care challenges, some of the, the costs. It's really going to take all of the players in the healthcare system to, um, to put their ingenuity, their innovation towards these problems, and we can get a lot further collectively. <laughs>
0: Tell me a little bit about the Council for Technology and Innovation. Because, and the reason I want to bring these things up is because when I'm sitting in, when I'm out in med tech world and I'm thinking about CMS, I'm not necessarily thinking about innovation, whether it's an Innovation Center or it's technology innovation. You know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, I might be thinking they're trying to restrict my ability to make money. And what I'm trying to help educate my listeners to is the whole concept of value-based care is a way to use things more effectively so everybody shares in taking care of a patient and, and including, you know, so it's profitable, which is the way our country works. So tell me a little bit about the Council for Technology and, and Innovation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We work very, I mentioned before that there are several different centers within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services or CMS. Um, and we work really across um, several of these centers to think about. New technology and how we evaluate the evidence—is there substantial clinical improvement? But also, um, what Medicare benefit category um, these new technologies fall under? A lot of the details about exactly how the coding and payment works um, can really depend on what uh, benefit category um, Congress, through statute, has really described and what makes the most sense for that for that technology. And so, what we also really try to do in this process is is engage various stakeholders so device or biologic or drug developers or manufacturers and uh they we basically um have developed this uh, we're working on first of all an external communication to describe this process more um, in detail but we what well, we provide a significant amount of information and resources on cms.gov already we're also trying to establish a small team of uh, new technology liaisons that can serve as a resource for stakeholders um, so, this team is available to um, help to point stakeholders uh, to or provide information uh, and resources where possible regarding process, requirements, timelines, coordinate and facilitate opportunities for stakeholders to engage with various CMS components, and to serve as really a primary point for contact for stakeholders and provide updates <coughs> on developments where possible or appropriate. So, um, if, if any of the folks that are listening today, uh, want to get in touch with this new technology liaison team, you can uh, reach them at Medicare Innovation at cms.hhs.gov. Uh, again, that's Innovation at cms.hhs.gov. So, hopefully that's a little bit helpful for listeners, um, but it really depends on the exact technology about how we look at it and evaluate it.
0: Sure. There, I know there's several different plans in terms of people getting reimbursed by Medicare for Various new types of procedures, and uh, sometimes they'll get this temporary code that they have for several years. It's almost like they have to prove that it's going to be used, and they can get some reimbursement, and then it's reevaluated again. Um, do you know what that is called?
1: I, I don't know if it exactly has a name right now, okay. um, uh, but I think in general that that is a strategy that we've used in the past to. Um, Part of the way that the claims processing happens is through what's called the Medicare Administrative Contractors or MACs. And so when something is new, um, they can they can just they have a little bit more flexibility in terms of how reimbursement works. And so we use that information and we kind of as we think about all of the all of the important uh, information that we we need within the benefit category, but it also depends on the technology. So it's it's a little bit hard to say precisely, but it, it so it, it very much depends, but that does happen.
0: But it's important that they have evidence. I mean, you have to if you're going to earn one of these these reimbursement paths, so to speak, you have to have evidence uh, from some of the work that you did as you developed a product in your clinical trials or whatever it might be. So not just evidence of the outcome, but you also have to have evidence as to the economic benefits that it may have for working within the system, you know, to earn, I think. One of these reimbursement paths, but they can make, they can be the difference between success and failure for um, a, a company with a new technology. So having that is, I think, an important um, development from you know coming out of Medicare. Let's talk about how CMS works to encourage equity, health equity, in terms of value based care. We've covered, we've talked about it a little bit on the fringes, but let's go more specifically
1: yeah absolutely so um these value-based care models can be a really important way to advance equity and um we haven't historically probably thought about equity in the context of value-based care as much as we should and and so what we're doing now is for example we're looking at our our programs and models and really identifying where are there inequities with types of providers that are participating can providers that are treating underserved and rural populations actually take part in these models or the very ways that the model's developed and the demands that it places on providers, is it too hard to really, for those providers, the safety net providers um, in underserved areas, in rural areas, um, to join the models? And so we've um, we've looked very closely at the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and we've looked at previous models and tests that the Center for Medicare, Medicaid, Innovation have done. Um, and we're really trying to think critically about the, the design of these elements. And does um, a design change Improve equity in terms of provider participation, the quality outcomes that, that that underserved populations will have if they are treated under the model, and and so and we're thinking about this really in an aligned way across our programs and activities. And so, um, I mentioned the social determinants of health earlier. Um, these are uh, quality measures that are now um, that have been proposed um, in in hospital systems, and we've been asking questions and soliciting comment from the public and other types of of models as well. And so we're really thinking. Um, uh, that both model development, but also the programs that we have that are, are these value-based care models. How can we design them in ways that we haven't before um, to really promote equity and ensure that everyone has equal opportunity to succeed in this country?
0: You know, before we hit the actually hit the record button, so to speak, you and I were talking. I was talking about my experience of having you know, surgery in France and. Talking about, you know, I've talked to some providers and some executives and stuff and uh, about the 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 disparity between where you get your income, like from private payers versus from Medicare, where you make your money, where you don't make your money. And there's this gap, uh, so to speak, where you don't make so much money from Medicare. So there's this gap and they're trying to close that gap. They're trying to reduce the costs that private payers would pay. And they're trying to reduce the costs that they incur so that they may make money from Medicare. When you, So I've also been interviewing people on artificial intelligence. And so we have these other dynamics, like the cost of uh, nursing has gone up. The number of medical professionals has gone down in some areas. So you need things like artificial intelligence maybe to make you more efficient. So we got all these problems and all these technologies are coming together to try to, to work and to solve these problems. How, how do you look at some of the stuff? Where do you see your, where's your optimism? Where do you get your optimism as you go forward and you say, you know, I'm, I think that I can make a difference and I'm going to help solve some of these problems and get these costs under the control so we have a, a good healthcare system in the United States
1: it's a there's so many things to talk about i i yeah. think that, um, <laughs>
0: um
1: so maybe just to break that that down a little bit um you you mentioned some of the um like what different payers pay for different things and what hospitals charge for different things um and different tests different procedures so part of what what we've been working on is uh hospital price transparency rules and regulations to really mm-hmm. ensure that um, some of the the data and information that hospitals have about um the, about charges and what what they charge and negotiate with the payers actually make that information public just so that folks can better understand when they go into their hospital what they can actually expect to pay based on their um, their insurance and as we mentioned before um it's really that affordability piece that i think is so important and make and. Lending transparency um, through our approach has been important as well, and it's we haven't gotten um, we haven't gotten it perfect yet, and um, we're still kind of looking and exploring about what we can do there. Um, but it, the approach of just increasing transparency so that what is such an opaque system for people can have another layer of transparency that that's just so important. What other what else gives me optimism? I think that part of the value based care arrangements that we talked about before, um, it's the goal, the administration has really been public with this goal to, to increase increasing accountable care uh, relationships with providers to the point where all tr- traditional Medicare beneficiaries um, have an accountable care relationship with their provider, accountable for the total cost and quality of care. Um, and I think that that gives me optimism because it can also create like a lot more holistic care that we talked about today. And we're also thinking in a much more cohesive, aligned way across these different centers To the point where, you know, in the value based care arrangements, an individual clinician might interact with 10 or more payers. Uh, Medicare might be one of them, but uh, there might also be a lot of different Medicaid managed care organizations, commercial payers. And what we're trying to do in ways that we haven't before is really make sure that we're aligning um, some of these quality metrics so that they're not all different, um, some of the ways that we're approaching value based care, and some of the ways that we're approaching equity. And so that alignment can be really important. Um, And lastly, the thing that I think gives me optimism is is really the focus on equity, unlike what we've had before, um, really can make it so that I, I mentioned I came most recently from Pennsylvania. If you're born in a certain census tract of North Philadelphia, your life expectancy could be on um, 62, 63 years. If you, huh. go to, if you go just less than a mile to the south, your life expectancy would go up to 87. The same thing would happen in a census tract in Erie. Life expectancy would be sixty-one. You go the census tract next door, just a few minutes walk away. Your life expectancy would go up to eighty-three. Um, same with part of the rural areas in Pennsylvania that I live pretty that I live more close to um, in, in Harrisburg. So I think that why is that so important? Well, by focusing on these inequities, um, it means that like we're really trying to to make sure that those profound differences in life expectancy. Are, are addressed and that people can actually make it to Medicare age, even outside the Medicare program. And that basically, and Medicare, of course, also covers folks with end-stage renal disease and disabilities. And so those are oftentimes disadvantaged populations. And how are we really addressing care for them to make sure that collectively we can all rise? And what's what's really great too, is that by focusing sometimes on those that have the most um, disadvantage, um, we can actually make care even better for the folks that have all the advantage in the world. And so I'm really kind of excited about the direction of CMS and what we can collectively do together.
0: You know, I think that the thing that people have to think about is that if you solve health equity and you provide, you're able to get to these populations, provide them better care, med tech industry benefits from that.
1: It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, for example, like if more people have access to Internet <laughs> and yeah. are able to access telehealth, um, it can really mean a lot more for um, for folks access to care, but also for innovation to, to really take shape. Um, um, and if we start to address and and these inequities are also a problem that innovation can help solve, too, um, to make sure if we build new technology with the most disadvantaged folks in mind. It can really um, make sure that it is more widely applicable for everyone.
0: Right. Right. Is there anything that you recommend that, that people read or subscribe to or, or I mean, I'll I i, I I'll put a link to the uh, CMS website in the show notes. If you don't mind, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile on the show notes as well. Is there anything that you re- recommend that people say so better understand value-based care, better understand Medicare, better understand how these systems work?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so we came out with three written pieces in the past year that I think are probably good reads for folks that want to better understand this. The first, we talk about our vision for Medicare by um, so this was Dr. Mina Seshimani, the director of Medicare um, and, and my boss, she wrote it with the um, uh, the director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, Liz Fowler, and uh, our administrator, Chiquita Brooks LaShore. That was that was in health affairs. Um, there's also we recently published um, a piece in JAMA. Uh, about health equity and um, how we're thinking about health equity within Medicare. I'd certainly recommend reading that. And also, we recently wrote an article um, with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation on, on, on ACOs, and that was published in the, um, the New England Journal of Medicine. And so, Ted, I can send you some of those articles. If, um, that'd be if great.
0: Something. Yeah. That, that'd be great. And I really want to emphasize to my listeners because the, the idea of reaching, especially this whole thing about equity... I mean, think about how many additional colonoscopies would be done. Well, you need scopes for all that. You know, you need doctors to do it and so on and so forth. But then do you extend to people's lives, make them more productive, have them pay, you know, be better taxpayers and so on and so forth, better participants in their community, um, and less expensive to take care of than if they got really ill and then they show up at the hospital, which is what happens. So that that's just one example, but I'm thinking of, you know. Treatment for AFib, ablations, whatever it might be. All the catheters it could be is there's a lot that med tech would benefit from if we had better health equity.
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> well, um, anything I've missed? I
1: think you covered a lot of the, the important areas. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was a really great discussion.
0: Okay. No, I, I really appreciate it. And I reserve the right to come back sometime in the future, maybe in a year or something, to see, if, you know, is your optimism maintained? You know, where what has changed in CMS over the last year? How does that affect the med tech industry and the population at large and so on? And um, But, Doug, thank you very much for the time today. I really appreciate it.
1: It was, it was an honor to be here and uh, happy to come back anytime.
0: For many in MedTech, one of the bigger events of the year is the annual issuance of the Medicare reimbursement adjustments. This is about the only way we interacted with CMS and the Center for Medicare. Meanwhile, most of us understand that our healthcare system is not working very well. Fact is, CMS and the Center for Medicare are very invested in working with all stakeholders to give us a viable healthcare system and that includes medtech. As I said earlier, the billion dollar companies are already securing their place with CMS and the healthcare systems. They have entire departments dedicated to this. But is your company What about the small to medium-sized companies? If you are in one of these companies, you need to be sure that you understand the CMS, the Center for Medicare and how to work proactively with them and providers to secure your future. Thanks for joining Doug and me today. Now go win your week.